Hello to everyone and welcome to BibleQuest.org where we have an open discussion on God's communication to mankind. Each week we broadcast our discussion, record it, and make it available for future viewing. So if you want to share it with others, please feel free to do that. You can find all the recordings at BibleQuest.org on Facebook and also on YouTube. Now this is an open discussion as I say every week, so we invite you in the audience to please join in the conversation. Text your questions and your comments. You do that by opening up the Q&A window by clicking the Q&A button that's on your screen and leave the window open and then just feel free to start texting away. Uh, you can also text us if you joined us on Facebook in the chat window on the right. Our panelists are Scott Smelzer from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, Scott. Good afternoon. Stephen Rouse, also from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Hi, Stephen. Hey, welcome everybody. And uh, Jeff Smeltzer from Exton, Pennsylvania as well. How you doing, Jeff? Hey, great. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Good to see you. Um, okay, and I'm your host, Rudy Grotto from Honesdale, Pennsylvania. All right, so let's get into our discussion today. Jeff, you want to go ahead and introduce the topic? Well, we're going to talk about foreshadowing in the Bible today. In Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 1, it talks about the law of Moses, and it says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come. It's an allusion to the fact that You've got the build-up, looking forward to Jesus, already hinted at in shadowings in the Old Testament. And so um, we're going to throw a question out for everyone to be thinking about as we get into this. And uh, I'd like you to use your Q&A if you come up with the answer to this. In Luke chapter 24, after Jesus has been crucified and raised from the dead and before he ascends back to the Father... He's talking to his apostles, and he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, and I just want to pause here on that, open their minds. There were things they understood were prophecies of the coming Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures, but there were other things in the Old Testament that weren't so obviously about the coming Messiah, at least not before he came, then they could be recognized once he came. And so Jesus opens their minds to the scriptures and says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now, you all may be able to think of passages in the Old Testament that clearly indicate the coming Savior, the coming Messiah would suffer, that he would even be put to death. But can you come up with a passage in the Old Testament that indicates he would rise on the third day? That's the question. Can you come up with an Old Testament passage that indicates he would rise on the third day. Use your Q&A um, tab at the bottom of the screen and, and, and send us what you think about that. All right, now uh, we're going to just categorize different kinds of prophecy a little bit. Usually many people, when they think of Old Testament scripture prophesying the coming Christ, they think of what's portrayed here on screen. There's statement X in the Old Testament and it looks forward to fulfillment X in the New Testament. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, it was prophesied that the one who would be ruler in Israel would go forth from Bethlehem. It was just a straightforward prediction, 
and it's talking about nothing other uh, nothing other that I know of other than the birth of Jesus. That's what the Jews understood it to be talking about, uh, and that's a, a prediction of a coming event. But there's also foreshadowing in the Bible, and foreshadowing is something that we see not only in the Bible but in literature generally. Scott, this is a book you had, I think, writing, or at least you saw it, writing and selling your mystery novel. Are, are you writing and selling a mystery novel? I am not writing and selling a mystery novel. <laughs> are you just writing one? No, I just thought this was an interesting description of, of what it takes to have foreshadowing. So it and, says, go ahead. When you insert a hint of what's to come, look at it critically, decide whether it's something the reader will glide right by but remember later with an aha, that's foreshadowing. If instead the reader groans and guesses what's coming, you telegraph. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, for those of you familiar with the movie, I'm not going to go into the, uh, the story, but like look, To Kill a Mockingbird, there's important foreshadowing there. And by the end, you realize, oh, that's where the author was going. Uh, I remember years ago watching uh, Back to the Future when it came out with some friends. And uh, we sat down, we watched it, and it got done. And my friend said, well, want to watch it again? So we did. And the second time was amazing because there were little things, oh, now I didn't see that before. I didn't catch that before. But we've also watched movies where, you know, the person goes into the room, bum, 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 and they're not looking, you can see what's happening. Foreshadowing gives you that aha because it, it's subtle until you see it and boom. In back, to the, in back to the Future, do you remember the, the, the two pine trees and the three pine, and he runs over one of the pine trees? And, yes. And so coming, you know, later, originally it was Twin Pine Mall, and then later when he's gone back in time and run over a tree, now you come back and the sign says Lone Pine Mall. <laughs> right, right. One thing I think is interesting about that is that in the New Testament, you would have had Jews listening to Jesus and as Jesus is talking about his death and his resurrection and the way that's going to happen, it's interesting to me that even though they knew the Old Testament scriptures, and we're going to talk about several examples today from the Old Testament scriptures uh, about you know, Isaac or about uh, the sacrifices or the Passover in Exodus 12, uh, or later we may talk about Joseph. And how many of the foreshadows talk or foreshadow Jesus's death, and yet right. how little the disciples were actually even anticipating the death of Jesus. Yeah. I mean, Peter goes so far as to say, this will never happen to you, Lord. And so it's foreshadowed, but they didn't understand it. And that's why but Luke 24 is so cool that he opens their minds to see, wow. Now, right. the whole time. Now, now here's the thing to Peter where he talks about the light shining dimly. Uh, until like the day dawns and then, oh, that's what that was. Now, now here's the thing about this, this element of foreshadowing. When we have a novel, a mystery novel or whatever, and we have foreshadowing in it, you, you read something in chapter one, you don't pay much attention to it. It's a little detail, but you get to chapter 26 and the culmination of the story, it all comes together and you rem and all of a sudden, oh, that's why that little detail was back right. there in chapter one. And, and it, it, it's, it's possible because the author who wrote chapter one is the same author who wrote chapter 26, and he knew what he was going to put in chapter 26 when he wrote chapter one. Right. When we're looking at the Bible, we're looking at a 
book, a collection of 66 books written by some 40 different authors over a time span of about 1,500 years. And yet the authors who wrote the first parts of the, of the Bible, the earliest books of the Bible, are incorporating all these details into their story that foreshadow the culmination that's not going to happen for hundreds of years later. Right. And the question then is, how in the world were they able to do that? And the answer is, of course, because there was indeed an author who knew the end of the story and was putting those details in it. It's an evidence that the Bible is the word of God. All right. The so, detail, let me just uh, add to that. But the detail there, it's not just uh, generic possibilities. It's really accurate, detailed accounts of things specifically. So we have Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 that talks about the law having not the very image of the good things to come, but a shadow of the good things to come. So what we're going to see in these Old Testament stories is kind of like uh, if you were standing and there was a corner of, of a building and there's a light shining from around the corner and you see a shadow of a person extended beyond the corner. You can't see the person, but you know somebody's coming. Shadow isn't clear enough to tell you exactly who it is, but you can tell it's a person and not a dog, something like that. And so we're going to see these things in the Old Testament that are going to be foreshadowings, but they're going to be so pervasive that we're going to see you can't just write them off to chance or happenstance. It's designed. But there's another uh, phenomenon, and that is when there's a statement made in the Old Testament and it looks forward to an Old Testament event that is a fulfillment, you might say, but it also looks forward to something in the New Testament. It also looks forward to Jesus. An example is in 2 Samuel, the seventh chapter, where Nathan the prophet tells, uh, he's speaking from God and he tells David that David is going to have a son who is going to build a house for God, a temple. And we turn over to First Chronicles, the 28th chapter, and you see uh, Solomon is, first of all, that son who builds the physical temple. But ultimately, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5, we see that the language in 2 Samuel 7 is quoted with reference to Jesus. He's the ultimate son of God who's going to build the ultimate house of God. And was and that ultimate house of God, the church, the spiritual body of Christ, is foreshadowed by the physical house of God in the Old Testament, just as Jesus himself is foreshadowed by Solomon. So there are all, all kinds of different arrangements of prophecy, but in, in very, very many, I would say in most of the prophetic passages in the Old Testament, this foreshadowing element is, is there. All right. So... In the, in the New Testament, we have different records uh, referring to this. Hebrews 10 says the law was a shadow of things to come. First Peter 3.21, uh, we, we have a word in English, type and antitype, corresponding to the first and the second. In First Peter 3, where it says, it talks about Noah being uh, saved through the water, then we through baptism, it's the like figure. The Greek word there is antitupon. Uh, or, or antipodes, which is antitype. So the flood waters for Noah being like a, a type of baptism. And in Colossians 2, you have the Sabbath is a shadow of things to come. We talked about that a few weeks ago on this broadcast. But let's go ahead and get into some of them. For instance, here's a real uh, fundamental one. 
the Old Testament, we had the Egyptians, and they were, what were they doing in, in Egypt? They were slaves. Situation. Yeah, slaves. Yeah, so they were in bondage. When they're delivered, the last thing they do, pretty much, at the last plague, they had to put something over their doorposts that would save them when death struck the house of the Egyptians. What did they have to put on the doorposts? Blood of a lamb. Yeah, and then they're delivered, but they have to pass through the Red Sea. And then they go out in the wilderness. Is everything easy out in the wilderness? Are they to the promised land yet? No, no, no. no, no. They got to go through some tough times out there on the way to the promised land. Okay, so that's the basic Old Testament history of the Exodus. And then we come and we look and we see, were we in bondage? Yep. We were slaves by the blood of the lamb. Yep. Did we pass through the water? Go through a time of trials? Headed to a promised land. So let's look at one of these um, more in more detail here. This uh, idea of the plagues that were brought upon the Egyptians to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. How many plagues were there? Ten. Ten. All right. And um, so uh, we're going to have to keep an eye on the Q&A thing, guys, as we go here. And if you need to jump in, Drew, at some point with that, just interrupt me. Yeah. But, yeah well, well, let me interrupt you that. Uh, uh, Jim's giving us a, a suggestion. He's asking the question if, if Hosea 6 2. He does use the term vaguely refer, and I think that's a good point. It, it's a possibility vaguely referring to his raising on the third day, because it says that he'll raise us up, the, the Hosea, to raise us up on the third day. Um, it's so interesting. Let's, let's, let's go move on further and see if that is an exact. You know, in the, in the, in the prep for the show, we talked about Hosea 11 1 a little bit. Um, it, it is interesting in light of the usage that um, is made of Hosea 11.1 1, that, that um, my son will be called out of Egypt. We're not quoting it exactly right. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't, I would not, I would not think it unlikely that Hosea 6.2 is intended as a similar foreshadowing. I think we'll understand it better after we spend a little bit of time uh, with this concept of right. foreshadowing. Right, yeah. So this, this uh, going back to when the, slave, when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and there have been nine plagues, and now God says, I'm going to bring one more plague, and this is going to be it. Pharaoh's well, let me let say you. one thing on that, on Jim's question while we're there. So that's an interesting text in Hosea, yet there's another, people out in the audience keep looking because there's another one more specific because we've got a, a later reference to it showing that it to be a shadow. So let's yeah, keep going back to that. the original question. That's right. Uh, can you come up with another passage that more, even more explicitly talks about three days and, and maybe is maybe a better way to say it where the new Testament explicitly makes the connection with right. that Old Testament passage. Right. <clears throat> All right. So in, uh, it, it, do I get to talk about Exodus 10 now? I mean, Exodus yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. All right. Thank you. Um, in Exodus uh, 11 and 12, God says in Exodus chapter 11, there's going to be one more plague, and this time Pharaoh's going to let you go. And he makes it clear that this plague is going to come upon all the Egyptians, but only on the Egyptians, not on the Israelites. And the plague is going to be that the firstborn of every household is going to die. Uh, about midnight, the Lord is going to pass through the land, and the firstborn of the Egyptians is going to die. Then we come down to Exodus chapter 12, 
And we see how the distinction is going to be made that it only happens to the Egyptians and not the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3, Moses is told, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. All right, so each household sets aside a lamb. And then at verse 6, it says, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. So everybody's going to kill their lamb. And then it goes on and talks about eating the lamb that night, eating it with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Tells them in verse 11 that they are to eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. That's traveling position. That's you got your shoes on, ready to go. Didn't wear the sandals in the house normally. Got your staff in your hand, loins girded, your long robes tucked up in your belt so that you can travel. Why? Because you're about to leave out of here. This plague is going to come. Pharaoh's going to let you go. But the text goes on and says in chapter 12, verse 11, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, guys, we know the word Passover. It happens every how often? Every year. Every year there's a commemoration of this event. Um, and so let's go on in the text and see the beginning of the Passover right here in this story. Why was it called Passover? Verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt. This is the Lord speaking. I'll go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I skipped one little detail that we need in this story. When they were to kill that lamb, they were told back in verse 7, they were to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost and, and, the, and the lintel, the, the header above the door. And they were to smear that blood there on their houses, the Israelites did, and then eat the lamb. Now it says in verse 13, as God says, I'm going to go through and I'm going to strike all the firstborn of the Egyptians. He then says, and the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then every year after this, all the way down to the time of Jesus and even to today, the Jews were observing this annual Passover. There were times in their history when they didn't keep up with it really well, but the, the law, the requirement was every year, observe this Passover, commemorate it at, the, at this time of year, and they were still doing that in Jesus' day. It's an interesting story. It's the kind of story that you can tell your child as a bedtime story or whatever, and it's just an interesting story in its own right. But guys, if you were going to leave a note, Stephen, if you're going to go over to Scott's house and Scott was not going to be there and Scott says, I need to leave a note for Stephen. I need to let Stephen know I, I, I'm not here or, the, or I need to let Stephen know this is the right house. Maybe he's traveling from out of state and he's coming to your house, Scott, and, um, and you need to let him know this is the right house. How would you do it? You'd probably turn the porch light on. You might give him the address, uh, you know. Would you smear blood all over the door? <laughs> and if you did, what would, you Tina, what would your wife say? <laughs> this is a strange way to let God know which houses are Israelite houses. Why not just stick an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper on the door and write Israelite house? 
Or for that matter, if God is God, doesn't he know which ones are Israelite houses? Yes. So why did he have it done this way? If we think about this and we say, well, you know what? Doing it this way, they were saved from death by the blood blood of the lamb. lamb. They were saved from death by the blood of the lamb. And what now what do we realize? You know, coming at this from an Old Testament perspective without knowing about Jesus, we wouldn't have any idea that this is about Jesus. But when we get to the New Testament and John's, when he sees Jesus in John 129, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, talking about Christ as our Passover. It all comes together. And now we have to ask one question here. What did Jesus do with the 12 apostles the night before he was crucified? What did he do? Celebrate the Passover. Yeah, everybody says it was the Last Supper, but the Bible doesn't use the expression Last Supper. We do, but the Bible tells us it was the Passover Supper. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, whose blood saves us from death, was crucified. He shed that blood at that annual time of the Passover, the observance of this. I don't think that's an accident. And and a spotless lamb, a, a lamb without defect. And then Paul will, in First Corinthians five, say Christ is our Passover. Yeah. Got a couple of questions yeah. here. Let's take Adam. Uh, right? Uh, J. Joe says so. The angel would pass over them. Going back four. Chase Byers says Jesus in Matthew twelve thirty eight forty references the story of Jonah and likens it to him also. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish. Uh, Tune in a little late. Uh, hope I'm not. No, you, that's right. That's what we're looking for. And uh, we'll be talking about that in a little bit more detail in a minute. Jesus himself points to that uh, sign of Jonah, which was not stated, but acted out. And that's one of the difference between the shadows and the straightforward prophecy and a straightforward prophet. Prophecy prophet says, this is going to happen. Then it happens. With a shadow, it's acted out. And then you see act two and realize, oh, that's what that's what that is. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk for just a minute about uh, another Old Testament shadow that we have uh, in the story of Isaac in Genesis 22 specifically. We actually don't have as much recorded about Isaac as we do about Abraham or Jacob, but this is that's one of the true. main... Uh, things that we have about Isaac's life, and it's when Isaac is younger. And in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham, and he says in verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. And it's really hard for us. I've just recently become a parent and to think about Killing your child it is just something that's, I think, incredibly difficult to even contemplate. But in Abraham's case, not only a child, but the child of his old age, uh, and that he had waited all this time for this child of promise that God said, you are going in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. No, it's going to be from you, not from, you know, and you and Sarah, your wife. Um, and all the things leading up to this, there was so much writing on the birth of this child. Yeah. And then God says, sacrifice him. Uh, wait a minute, God. 
you had you had some other plans for him, didn't you? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And yet Abraham, this is just amazing. Verse three, he got up early in the morning and just immediately Abraham sets out to do what the Lord told him to do. And so they go three days uh, there to the specific place. It just says the land of Moriah. We don't know the exact uh, location where they were, but it's in the land of Moriah. And uh, on the third day, uh, he leaves the servant behind, takes Isaac with him and has Isaac carry the wood. They go out there. And uh, of course, this is the time when the child asks the question, my father, we've got the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And of all things, I don't know if Abraham was inspired when he said this, but, you know, he says, verse, verse uh, eight, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both, so they went, both of them together. And so they come to the place, Abraham builds the altar, puts the wood on the altar, and apparently Isaac doesn't struggle. He ties up Isaac, his son, puts him on the altar, takes the knife in his hand to slay his son. And that's when the angel of the Lord calls out, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then he sees this ram caught in its horns there nearby in a bush, and he offers the ram in the place of his son. Um, so Abraham, in his mind, was completely ready to sacrifice his son on the altar. In his mind, I think Abraham had already done it. He'd already kind of made the decision and was just the only thing left was kind of for the hand to come down. And he stopped right there. Now, again, it, it's a dramatic story just in and of itself, but it becomes even more interesting when we think about the parallels to Jesus. So we'll kind of walk back through here. Um, from the beginning, and, and even when he says uh, that you have not withheld your son, your only son, he says at least twice here in the text. And of course, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so you've got uh, his only son. He's to offer him in sacrifice. It's very rare. I don't know of any other time that the Lord asks for a human sacrifice. That was actually something that would be prohibited in the law and other places. And here he says, I want you to offer your son in sacrifice. And of course, the sacrifice that's going to be offered for us is the body of God's only son, Jesus. He tells him to go to Moriah, and this is just notable because he could have done this sacrifice anywhere, but he says specifically go to the land of Moriah. The only other reference we have to the land of Moriah is in Second Chronicles 3, verse 1, where it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David's father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. A couple of interesting things about that. One is that it connects this with where did purchase the threshing floor from the hand of Ornan the Jebusite. When we go back and read that story in 1 Chronicles 21, 18 and following, we find out that there was another sacrifice that was made on that spot to stop the plague uh, that was going through the Israelites at the time. But the more significant point, I think, is that this is where the temple is going to be built. So it's in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And it's going to be centuries later that just outside the city of Jerusalem, 
there will be the ultimate sacrifice. God's you know, only son. God's only son. So the fact that he tells him, you go to the land of Moriah, is that there's something that the Lord wants us to connect this with, and it's going to be the ultimate sacrifice of God. Yeah, it wasn't a convenient place to go. It was three days journey, so there must be some significance about the location. And yet he's told no significance. If, if, oh. if you're Abraham, he does what he's told to do, but think how many questions you would have. Why should I have to do this? How will the promises be filled if I do this? Why do we need to go three days journey to this other place? And the Old Testament doesn't, doesn't answer any of those questions that he would have had. Yeah. And it's just interesting, even the details of this account, that he laid the wood of the offering on Isaac, his son. It's such a fitting picture of Jesus carrying his cross to the place of his own sacrifice. One of our viewers noted that one in the Q&A. <clears throat> Excellent. And in Hebrews 11, we have actually a little more detail about what Abraham was thinking in Hebrews 11 than even in the Genesis 22 text. There in verse 19, it says, uh, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Again, in Abraham's mind, this is basically a resurrection. He, he had already kind of killed his son mentally, and he still is able to have his son and come back to the servant um, after he does this. And, of course, the idea that God will provide the lamb. I don't know if Abraham realized what he was saying at the time, but that's what would happen in the land of Moriah centuries later. And he ends up naming the place uh, God God will provide. The Lord will provide, as it said this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided, and, and the sacrifices can be provided. If I could just mention one thing on that previous point you said, where connecting with Hebrews eleven nineteen, where Abraham was accounting that God is able to raise even from the dead, He's trying to reconcile what God has already told him. He's going to have posterity through Isaac. And now God says, kill Isaac before Isaac has grown up and had children. And so in his own mind, he's, he's assuming, I guess he's going to raise Isaac from the dead. And if you look at the story in Genesis 22, he tells the servants in verse 5, stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship, and we will return to you. Now, some yes. translations say we will worship and return, but Hebrew is clear. That return is plural. It's we will return to you. So apparently, he was not just saying that to conceal his purpose from Isaac. He was believing, I'm going to go up there, I'm going to sacrifice my son, and he's going to come back to life. That's not exactly what happened literally in his case, though in his mind, he, you could say he got his son back from the dead. But it is a profound foreshadowing of what happens. Jesus, God's son, is sacrificed and comes back from the dead. Yeah. And when That's Moses amazing. writes this, you've got the narrative of what happened, which is a powerful narrative and, and an extreme test of faith here. But so much of the meaning is not there until you look nearly 2,000 years later and we see that in that same area, God takes his son, offers him in sacrifice. And so Abraham is to go to where that'll happen some millenniums later. Uh, he'll carry the wood. And Stephen, you mentioned that he bound Isaac. I forgot to put that in the chart. Jesus in the Gospels is bound. And, What's and of course... 
New Testament does this phrase really come alive for us? God will provide for himself the lamb. And what's amazing to me is Drew. the connection and how these things oh, enhance each other. You've got the, of course, it becomes so much more significant when we get to the New Testament. But these Old Testament shadows sometimes give us an even another window into how the Lord looks at this and how the Lord would have felt in sacrifice of his only son. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's just amazing. Drew, talk to us about Jonah. Yeah, Jonah's an interesting uh, prophet. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he's the only prophet that, well, his only message was really to someone outside of Israel, not to Israel itself. In fact, the book itself, the message is not about the message, the book rather is not about the message, it's more about the messenger, Jonah himself. And so the Lord tells him, okay, I want you to get up, I want you to go to Nineveh. And that was, he didn't want anything to do with that. He didn't want to go to, I mean, Assyria, I don't want to have anything to do with those people. So he runs, we know the story. He runs, gets on a boat, go to Tarsus. As soon as he gets on that boat, waves, the storm comes along and it looks like they're all going to perish on that. Where does Jonah go? He's asleep in the boat. He goes down to the lowest part of the boat and just goes off to sleep as if he doesn't care. Maybe he doesn't. At this point, he just he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Well, they, they, they're praying to their gods and recognize there's somebody's responsible for this. No, uh, Jonah owns up to it and says, yeah, it's me, my fault. Throw me overboard. And when you throw me overboard, all your problems will be gone. Now, Jonah at that time figured he's dead. He's going to die. So he, they throw him overboard, and we know the story. He ends up being swallowed by a great fish. Well, and first, the sea becomes calm. Oh, yeah, as soon as it goes in, right? In fact, he even says that. You throw him overboard, that sea is going to calm, calm down, which is an amazing, amazing uh, concept. So what happens? He gets swallowed up by the fish, gives him time to think about it. He starts praying to the Lord. How long is he in the fish? Three days, three hmm. nights, right? Now, it doesn't use the term, and on the third day, he was spit up. <laughs> or the, some translations say vomited. But it says he was in there three days. <laughs> All of this is not clear at the time it was written as to what this is referring to. When Jesus now comes along, it turns out that we see that, well, yeah, there it is on the slide. Uh, they both preachers have salvation in relationship to the Gentiles, right? And it's interesting, both of their lives are threatened by the storm, the sea, at one point, and both of them sleep in the boat. And they both offer each other of themselves up to save other people. And they both ended up, in Jonah, he was responsible for the sea being calmed indirectly, God carried it out, but Jesus physically carried out calm that sea. Uh, both of them were swallowed up, not necessarily in the same entity, but they were entombed, right? And then they were both raised up from that entombment on the third day. Now, Jeff, you had started out with Matthew 12, with the Actually, very- Luke 24. I'm sorry, Luke 24, which talks about this, but it doesn't give the answer there in Luke 24. Uh, let me get my version up here. It just says that thus in verse 46, <clears throat> about opening up their minds to the scriptures, he says it was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. 
Well, well, where does it say that? Well, we can find in in Isaiah 53, right, about the suffering Christ, mm -hmm. the things he's going to go through, mm -hmm. rejection like that. But Isaiah 53 does not mention third day being raised. No, no. Okay, so then where is it written? Because that's what he says. It's written. Psalm 16 talks about not being left in the grave, not seeing corruption, but it doesn't say the third day. Right, right. right. So what do we have? A little conundrum here. What's going on here? Well, the, and this is the thing about the shadowing. The shadow is not a direct prophecy like the other examples you talked about, the difference between the two. But Jesus gives us the answer to this, doesn't he? Yeah, and and he he connects it right there in the passage you've got on screen in Matthew 12, except there shall be no sign given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, the fact is he's just done a huge miracle, but these people were begging for another sign. What they're really begging for is food, and, and they're missing the big point. And sometimes that big point was explicitly foretold in the Old Testament. Sometimes it was foreshadowed. And he goes to this story of Jonah being three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. As wouldn't you say, it shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And wouldn't you say then, if it wasn't for the story and the book of Jonah, we, we he wouldn't have been using that one. Right. So he's connecting the dots for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's telling us how we need to be connecting the dots. And when you look at that, you go back and look at all the facts about Jonah. Then you start seeing all those things that you had up on your, on your slide before that, all those different things on how much those foreshadowing events really parallel what happened with Jesus. Uh, you said it already. This, this was written over hundreds of years, this book, 1,500 years by different people, different men. And, and as we've got a comment here, Jonah is a mighty message of God's love for the lost, despite his messenger's disobedience. That's true. Which reminds us of Hebrews. It says it's a shadow, not the very image. There are things that are different about Jonah and right. Jesus. Yeah, Jonah is a very unwilling, unwilling problem. But it's it's these shadows that, that, that jump out to us. Looks like we've got another comment here. Uh, really enjoy the meeting, Stephen. Hey, thanks for watching, people. We appreciate your... Uh, being on here. All right. Uh, did you have? Do you have something, Stephen? Yeah, I think it's also just interesting that with some of these shadows, it's not that even the shadows themselves realize what's going on. Jonah is the most unwilling no of clue. the prophets. No clue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and even the unwillingness, it, it's his rebellion that leads to what God then uses to be one of the greatest foreshadowings of the resurrection of Jesus. Right. Right. And I think it's just even more powerful when it's. God is taking unwilling examples and using those as this is God's in control, obviously. Now let's touch on this, a precaution, a question, because we can start looking at the Bible and we can start, oh, is this, like I remember one time somebody said, when Samson dies between the two pillars, that's Jesus between the two thieves on the cross. You can yeah. start looking for things everywhere and, and we need to be cautious that now with, with Jonah, we don't have to wonder because Jesus himself connects those dots for us. There but are coincidences in life. There are coincidences. For example, Lincoln was president in 1860. He lost a child while president. He was shot from behind while sitting with his wife. And so then his vice president, Johnson, became president. 100 years later, Kennedy is elected president in 1960 lost a child while president. 
shot from behind while sitting with his wife, and he's succeeded by Vice President Johnson. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, the, I, the thing about Vice President Johnson, that's really, really remarkable. The thing about being shot from behind, if you're going to shoot somebody, it kind of makes sense. <laughs> you get a better shot if you come from behind, but that's remarkable. But parallels in and of themselves are not evidence of innovation. We see a lot of similarities there, but what's missing? Well, what's missing is design. Right. And uh, we can we can see the evidence of the design in the Bible. We'll come back to that in a minute and talk about a little bit why. Well, we're going to have to hurry. Right. Yeah, we need to hurry here. Here's that chart. Go ahead and go through it, Jeff. Right here. So we've got these parallels. Lincoln in 1860 becomes President Kennedy in 1960. But nobody noticed the parallels between the two until after Kennedy was assassinated. You look back through history and you can find two similar things. But what if in 1900, 40 years after Lincoln was assassinated, people are saying, we're going to have another Lincoln. Uh, what if there was already an understanding Lincoln represents somebody who's coming in the future and then Kennedy comes along? Then it would be something. And that's what we have in the Bible. You have David foreshadowing the Christ, and they're all kind of parallels between David and Jesus. 400 years after David's lifetime, you've got Ezekiel, for example, referring to the coming Christ and calling him David because it was understood David represents the coming Christ. Then Jesus comes, and all the parallels are in place. Now you say, hey, this was anticipated by somebody. Right, right. Yeah, with Lincoln and Kennedy, we have similarities, but there's no prophetic connection. Yeah. That's what's missing. Now, we're about to run out of time, so let's get through this real quickly here. You can also purposely copy something. For example, who do you see in that photograph? Who's that guy right there? Uh, Drew? I, my image is too small. I don't have it full screen. That's John F. Kennedy. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. He's on a yacht. John, he's president of the United States at the time. There's a young man back there. Anybody want to guess who that is? Steven? I have no idea. Doesn't look like Steven. John F. Carey, who Boston Globe said he had a boyhood dream of following in JFK's footsteps. When he was in college, there was, in, there was a parody of the Yale News where it called it uh, kind of poked, took note of his Kennedy worship and his political ambition, because back then he wanted to be president. It called him John Fitzgerald Carey. So he grew up wanting to be president. He was a conscious protege. So Kitty is, his initials are? JFK. He is a Roman Catholic. He signed up for? Naval. Na Naval service, Naval Reserve. He was elected senator for Massachusetts. He married Jackie, and he used the PT boat story for political fame, and it honored him, and he got elected president. Guess what? What are Kerry's initials? JFK. Guess what his religion is? Catholic. Now, he didn't set that up. That's coincidence. But guess what he enlisted for? Navy. Navy. Guess where he ran for senator? Senator from Massachusetts. Did he also guess marry Jackie? Who, guess who he dated? <laughs> oh, okay. he dated Jackie's sister. But okay. then I think she fell in love with this other guy. Uh, and did he try to use... The Swift Boat story? Yeah, the Swift Boat, yep. Yeah, ended up kind of getting criticized for it. And he, well, he, he wanted to be president. Okay. All right. A lot of amazing parallels there, but there's some conscious duplication. What's missing this time? Not only is there no prophetic connection, 
kind of missed in, it on some of the fulfillments. He's in control of most of that. He dates Jackie's sister. He doesn't marry her. He tries to get the sweat boat story. Well, it's only a foreshadowing, though. <laughs> he tried to be president. Doesn't work out. So those are some differences. Jeff, finish this out with this. All right. So here, here, are things, here, here, kind of here are things that really drive home the point that we've got something that's impressive in the Bible. When you have details in a story that are only necessary if the story is applicable to Jesus, why would we need to told... Why, were we, why did we need to be told that Abraham was to go to the land of Moriah to sacrifice Isaac? Moriah had never been mentioned in the Bible and would never be mentioned in the Bible again, except in connection with the place where Jesus is going to be sacrificed. The language that is used in some of these Old Testament stories, like in Genesis 22, when it says, take now your son, your only son whom you love. If you've been reading the book of Genesis up to that point, you know that Abraham had two sons. So why use the language, take now your son, your only son, unless it's pointing specifically to Jesus? You can go down to the next category where there is the prospective identification as a type, where there's some character in the Old Testament. And even in the Old Testament, while they didn't understand exactly what the coming Christ was going to be, they understood that they represented the coming Christ. Then you see Christ come and you see the parallels. That's impressive. And then the last point is perhaps the most profound of all, the pervasiveness. When you go through the whole Old Testament and you see story after story, event after event, place after place, thing after thing, its meaning is fulfilled in the New Testament, in Jesus, and really is not fully explained in the Old Testament. And when you see that's thoroughly true throughout the whole Old Testament, then you come to the conclusion, hey, this Old Testament was designed to point to Jesus. Our time is up, but next week we'll be continuing on Foreshadows Part 2. Drew? Yeah, before we do end up, I did want to catch up this last. Uh, Chase came in and talked a little bit more about the story of Jonah. Uh, some people think try to say that it was a fable, but it clearly is not. Obviously, Jesus himself refers to as a real person. Any other thoughts or comments before we go, guys? I really thank you for all of your input today and the discussion. I think we're going to follow up on this with a couple of uh, detailed analysis of a couple of stories in the Old Testament next week, right? Yeah, we're going to be looking at Joseph, which is amazing with the details of those of the foreshadowing and, and predictions from that. All right, thank everyone. You. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you all of you, everyone in the audience. I look forward to seeing everyone next week. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <clears throat>